The U.S. House has voted along party lines to impeach the Homeland Security chief. It's Wednesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what's behind a recent wave of walkouts by journalists in more than two dozen U.S. newsrooms? Withholding our labor is, is essential to making sure that the boss knows that we have a seat at the table, that we have a voice, and we have a lot of collective power. Also this hour, how conservation groups and ranchers are teaming up to save millions of acres of native grasses. And on this Valentine's Day, falling in love with Boston. WBUR listeners and readers share their favorite stories. I dodged through traffic with no blinker, and I didn't let anyone merge. I'd always been a steady and cautious driver but now I'm just as unpredictable as anybody else. Cloudy skies gradually clear in the 30s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Democrats have picked up a fresh seat in the House of Representatives. Tom Suozzi has won a special congressional election in New York. From member station WSHU, Desiree DiOrio reports, Suozzi will serve out the rest of the term of Republican Congressman George Santos, who was expelled. In the swing district that gained notoriety for sending Republican George Santos to Congress, voters battled a snowstorm to elect Democrat Tom Suozzi. He represented New York's third congressional district before, from 2017 through 2022. The race has been watched closely across the country as an indicator of public sentiment ahead of the November elections. The migrant crisis at the southern border and its impacts on New York City and the suburbs played a dominant role throughout the tight race. Swazi has promised to bring a steady hand back to Washington in the aftermath of Santos's tumultuous 11 months on the job before his expulsion last year. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. The House has impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by one vote. That was a do-over for House Republicans who failed in their first impeachment try last week, but they picked up a vote yesterday from Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise. He had missed last week's ballot for medical treatment. Scalise says the impeachment is because Mayorkas and President Biden are letting migrants illegally cross the border. Democrat mayors who are calling on the president to fix this problem, and yet the president ignores it. President Biden says the Republicans are playing petty political games. The impeachment articles will now go to the Senate. Since that chamber is controlled by Democrats, it's not likely that Mayorkas will be removed from office. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been discharged from the hospital and has resumed his duties. He had been treated for a bladder issue. Austin was criticized last month for failing to immediately inform President Biden he had previously been hospitalized for cancer surgery. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention might change its policy for people with COVID. NPR's Ping Huang reports the CDC might soon stop recommending that people with COVID isolate for five days. People who test positive for COVID are probably contagious for the first few days at least. That has not changed. But the CDC may drop the recommendation that they isolate to stop the virus from spreading. Jennifer Nuzzo with the Brown University School of Public Health says a shift like this helps streamline the guidance. This policy change potentially brings how we manage COVID in closer harmony with how we manage other respiratory pathogens like influenza. Still, she says a change like this could make it harder for people to stay home from work or school when they're sick. The planned policy change was reported in the Washington Post and attributed to several unnamed CDC officials. It said the updated guidance could be coming in April. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Today, nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester are delivering a petition to the CEO and the chief nursing officer demanding immediate action to protect patients. David Schildmeyer is with the Massachusetts Nurses Association. He says dangerous conditions have existed in St. Vincent Hospital for several months. We have patients lying for hours, uh, pardon me, in their own feces, in their own urine, for want of a nurse being able to get there. Um, Patients are falling, infections are happening, and patients have died as a result of these conditions. It has to stop. Schildmeyer says 80 percent of the nurses at the hospital have signed the petition. WBUR has reached out to St. Vincent Hospital for comment. A new study finds that older adults who exercised regularly before the pandemic are less likely to get COVID. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital studied more than 61,000 adults with an average age of 76. Dennis Munoz Vergara is lead author of the study. He says researchers classified participants as inactive, insufficiently active, or sufficiently active. We found that those sufficiently active had a 10% reduction in COVID-19 infection and 27% reduction in hospitalization due to COVID-19 compared to those inactive. The findings also suggested women benefited from physical activity more than men did. Today, the Boston City Council will consider a resolution in support of a ceasefire in the war in Gaza. Two similar resolutions were considered last October but never made it past initial discussions. Cambridge, Somerville and Medford have all passed similar proposals. Federal emergency management officials are denying a request for a major disaster declaration for three Massachusetts counties. Bristol, Hamden, and Worcester counties experienced severe flooding after a storm last September. The Healy administration says it's disappointed in the, deci- in the decision. State officials say they'll distribute $5 million in flood relief funding to affected communities. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. The Celtics are coming off their fifth straight win after defeating the Brooklyn Nets last night. Final score was 118-110. to Forward Jason Tatum scored 41 points for the team. The Seas turn around to play the Nets again tonight, this time at home. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins lost last night's game against Tampa Bay in a shootout. They fell to the Lightning 3-2. Mostly cloudy through the morning today, but skies will clear into the afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 30s, and it'll also be windy. Tonight's still windy, and temperatures fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow, clouds move back in throughout the day. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. For the first time in almost 150 years, a cabinet secretary has been impeached. 
By a margin of just one vote, the House voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas last night. Republicans accuse Mayorkas of failing to comply with federal law and blame him for a surge in unlawful border crossings during the Biden administration. The Democrats call the whole thing a political sham. Joining me now to talk about this is Michael Gearhart. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law who focuses on constitutional conflicts between presidents and Congress. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I want to start just with your initial reaction here. No sitting cabinet minister has been impeached um, since 1876. What kind of precedent does this set? This sets a horrible precedent. Uh, This is the first time in American history in which the House has impeached anyone without any evidence at all. Um, This is uh, clearly a political stunt, clearly an effort on the part of the Republican leaders in the House uh, to do what uh, Donald Trump wants, which is to simply turn impeachment into a joke or to use it as mm-hmm. a means by which to harass President Biden during a presidential election year. Now, Republicans accuse Mayorkas of, quote, willfully and systemically refusing to comply with federal immigration law. In your view, there's no merit to this charge? I, I don't believe there's any merit. Uh, Mayorkas has not only testified numerous times but he's clearly following the Biden policy on immigration and, in fact, was negotiating a deal with the Senate on immigration policy um, and got it through the Senate, uh, at least initially. That doesn't suggest he's um, in, engaging in any kind of serious misconduct, which is exactly what should be the basis for impeachment. So as the Democrats point out, Mayorkas, and as you just pointed out, Mayorkas is just implementing Biden policy, they say. So is impeachment being used here as a political tool by one party against another? Yes, it's clearly being used. In fact, we know that from the fact that the Speaker, Mike Johnson, announced dead on arrival, the deal that had been negotiated in the Senate on immigration policy, and in fact, that deal gave Republicans a lot of what they want. This is not a majority in the House that's prepared to legislate or do serious business in, in, in Congress. They want to turn uh, impeachment. They want to dilute it of any meaning, but they also want to use impeachment as a way to hurt President Biden during an election year. And that's just transparently partisan. So you mentioned earlier that you see this as a horrible uh, precedent-setting event. I mean, what do you see in the future going forward? If the House were to follow this example, which I don't think it will in the long term, then the House would simply impeach anybody with whom it has a political difference. Um, the House tried to do that with Andrew Johnson over reconstruction policy. Johnson fell one vote short uh, of conviction in the Senate. And now um, we have a situation in which if the Republicans had their way, the trial in the Senate would be putting Biden's immigration policy on trial. The elections are uh, well-suited to deal with policy differences. Impeachment is not supposed to be based on policy differences. In fact, the framers rejected the term maladministration as a basis for impeachment, meaning the framers rejected basing impeachment on administration that others disagreed with. So you're saying basically a policy difference is being settled with impeachment, which, uh, in your view, is a very dangerous precedent. Could this all backfire on Republicans? Well, it has the potential of backfiring because it demonstrates, I think, those who voted for the impeachment of New Yorkers are not serious about immigration policy. They'd rather hurt Biden than solve the border crisis.
As an expert on constitutional conflicts between presidents and Congress, what should be happening over what really everyone acknowledges is a crisis at the border? Well, there, there was a bill that was seriously negotiated, a bipartisan bill that came out of the Senate, um, but again gave uh, Republicans largely what they would have wanted in terms of immigration policy. That's the appropriate way to deal with this, is through legislation. Impeachment is not um, a legitimate means by which to deal with policy disagreement. Constitutional law professor Michael Gerhardt, thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you very much. Over the past few weeks, journalists have walked out of more than two dozen newsrooms. They're on picket lines protesting layoffs and budget cuts at longtime papers as well as digital startups. NPR's David Falkenflick has the story of a newsroom union leader who sees examples for success in other industries, from actors to automakers. These days, most people scroll through social media on their phones instead of subscribing to local outlets. So pick a newsroom at random around the country, and more likely than not, there's been layoffs. The Messenger shut down. That's more than 300 journalists. It's happened at The Washington Post, the not-for-profit Texas Tribune. The Wall Street Journal just fired 30 reporters and editors in its Washington bureau. Journalists are standing up and saying, enough is enough. We can't take these cuts anymore. We've got to fight back. John Schloys, spelled like Seuss, rhymes with rejoice. Anyway, John Schloys is the international president of the News Guild CWA, the largest union representing U.S. journalists. He got his start at the Los Angeles Times, which has faced one crisis after another. It was anti-union for the longest time, and so was Schloys. I grew up in rural Arkansas, and I did not grow up in a union family. I didn't really grow up in in a culture that even you know, talked about unions. They just didn't even exist. Six years ago, when its journalists voted to unionize, the L.A. Times was owned by Tribune Media. At the Los Angeles Times, we were facing a crisis moment where we had management constantly changing, very little job security. Reporters decided they needed to negotiate collectively. Tribune wanted no part of the union there and sold the L.A. Times to a local billionaire, Patrick Soon Chong, who invested heavily. What happened in L.A. inspired a wave of union activism among journalists. Schloys rode that wave to win election to lead the News Guild. More than 100 newsrooms have voted to join the Guild in the past six years. When we were organizing at the LA Times and building the union, we we never thought we would go on strike. Schloys says he's been radicalized a second time. Confrontation, he says, was necessary. And now it's completely changed. We realize that withholding our labor is, is, is essential to making sure that the boss knows that we have a seat at the table, that we have a voice, and we have a lot of collective power. Here's what that sounded like last week in Chicago. In the nearly 200 years of the Chicago Tribune, this is the first time that we have ever gone on strike. Gregory Royal Pratt is an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, owned by a private investment fund called Alden Global Capital. About 150 people turned out, as they have at the New York Daily News, the San Antonio Record, Vanity Fair, Business Insider, and elsewhere. Well, it brings people to the bargaining table. Other companies that have had walkouts from the Washington Post on down You've seen companies come back and and negotiate in better faith and understand that this isn't something that they want. They don't want the disruptions. There's a question about whether what's worked in more vibrant industries, from cars to shipping, can work for the news business, which is ailing badly. In Pittsburgh, journalists at the Post-Gazette went on strike more than 15 months ago against an intransigent owner. They're still off the job with basically nothing to show for it. Alex Colvin is the dean of the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. Colvin says unions cannot stop the laws of physics. When cuts are on the way, 
they'll probably happen. The question is, what's going to be the impact on the workers? Is there going to be any measures to soften the impact on them, to do right by people who've worked for a business for a long time? It is possible to have impacts by uh, negotiations, reaching a deal. As the News Guild's John Schloys sees it, his members are standing up for their jobs and for journalism. They're desperate to do this work, to tell the stories that, that folks in our communities want to hear. When you have corporations, hedge funds, but billionaires, and then really bad management, they're looking around being like, what, what's going to happen? Like, who's going who's gonna to be here? No one is going to be here unless we stand up and fight. As for those newspaper proprietors, a range of reactions. The Washington Post tells NPR that it respects the union's efforts to reach contracts acceptable to both sides, as they did in December. Alden Global Capital says it hopes the union understands the need to get more money from digital media giants like Google. And the LA Times' owner has said the union's refusal to waive seniority protections made him cut more jobs than he would have had to do otherwise. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Today is Valentine's Day. Mm. It's also Ash Wednesday. The first day of Lent is a holy day for many Christians. During this time of charity, prayer, and fasting for many, people who observe Lent also choose abstinence as a way to mark the weeks leading up to Easter. Giving up chocolate is a classic example. Ooh, a hard one. Any time of the year, but especially on Valentine's like, Day. No, Ugh. but in recent years, more people have decided to take a break from social media or cutting down on screen time. You can do that. Just listen to more radio. Some advocates this year suggest giving up carbon emissions, driving less or turning down the thermostat. But Father James Martin says Lent isn't just about sacrifices. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at the Catholic magazine America. You know, I try to curb my tongue in terms of gossiping and give more to the poor and just try to be a kinder person. Martin says he also observes a custom that he started in his college days when his Jewish friends suggested what he should give up for Lent. They said, well, who decides what you give up? And I said, well, I do. And they're like, well, how hard is that? <laughs> and I said, what would you suggest? And they said, we should decide what you give up. So they did. And the first year, I think I gave up Hostess snowballs, you know, those pastries and uh, orange soda. And if you just can't bear to give something up, you can also consider giving. And if you're stuck, just look around in your life and see someone who's needy and give them a phone call or a homeless person on the street and take them into a restaurant and give them a meal. Uh, so I, I think in addition to giving up, it's, um, it's doing something positive as well. He sees Lent as a chance to recall the common good. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's impeachment in the House and U.S. officials say arrests for illegal crossings of the U.S. border with Mexico fell by half in January from record highs in December. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Valentine's Day story from Ukraine, where a so-called love train brings significant others to meet soldiers on leave. It's 719. 
WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Caitlin Clark, the women's college basketball player, is on the verge of breaking the scoring record. The hype is palpable, and fans are putting their money down. We got them for off a student. They were $9 seats, and I think we paid $2.50 apiece. <laughs> we didn't care. We didn't care. We didn't care. More on the Caitlin Clark effect on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. We start out mostly cloudy today, but skies will gradually clear through the afternoon. Highs will be in the low 30s and it'll be windy. Skies stay clear tonight. Temperatures will be in the low 20s. Tomorrow it grows overcast again and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from St. Martin's Press, publishers of The Women, a novel by Kristen Hanna, author of The Nightingale, a portrait of coming of age and a tale of a nation divided. The Women is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Tunisian mother Alfa Hamrouni's two eldest daughters disappeared almost a decade ago when they were just 16 and 15. They left their home and went to neighboring Libya where they joined the violent extremist group, the Islamic State. In a quest to get them back, Alfa went public with her story, begging for help to get them returned and to stop her two youngest girls from following in their footsteps. It was then, in 2016, that I met Alfa and her youngest girls, Aya and Taysir. In 2012, we never even heard of ISIS. I thought my girls were just learning from a local preacher at a prayer tent. There, she's describing how her girls were brainwashed. Today, these two young women, her mother, and their family story is at the center of a genre-bending film called Four Daughters. The documentary has professional actors portraying the two eldest daughters who are currently in prison in Libya. And acclaimed Tunisian-Egyptian actor Hin Sabri alternates in the role of the mother with Alfa Hamrouni herself. I spoke with the writer and director of the film, Kauthar Benhania, after it was nominated for an Oscar for Best documentary film. And I started by asking her why she chose to tell this story. Like many, many Tunisian, I wanted to understand why. Yeah. Why two young girls uh, decide to go through this path. And uh, I realized that uh, to understand, I have to do a movie. So I contacted Olfa and we started there. And then uh, we spent years and years together. How did you land on this format where you had actors, 
playing the older daughters, but you also had a stand-in in case the scene was too difficult for Alfa, so Hinsabri would jump in. I mean, how did you come up with this format? Because I quickly understood that if I want to understand why uh, the origin of the tragedy or the origin of the new story, I have to go uh, to their past with them to revisit their past uh, so this was uh, how I understood that I needed more than um, a conventional fly-on-the-wall documentary. The Egyptian-Tunisian actor Hin Sabri plays Alfa Hamrani in some scenes, the mother. And it's moments that um, the mom might find it too difficult to play herself in a scene, like her wedding night, like the first time she's reunited with her daughters that are actually actresses playing her daughters, but it's very difficult. And But in those scenes, you still see Olfa Hamrani stay in the frame, the mom sort of directing Hind as Hind is playing her. I wanted to ask about the relationship between these two women and how it evolved during the film as Hind plays Ulfa in front of Ulfa. Yeah, and for an actress like Hind, she's, as you said, well-known. She's a star in the region. Very famous. Here she's like... it's a it's a risk for her because she's out of her comfort zone. So she starts in the beginning of the movie saying that she will protect herself. She's a professional actor. And we see during the movie how at some point at the end she's crying and she's hugging Ulfa because she understood uh, all the complexity. Ulfa is a very flawed character. She's not a perfect mom, but she understood the complexity of the life of this woman. So it was very interesting to see a very different uh, woman bonding together during the shooting. It was so fascinating. There's another scene where there's an actor that plays, basically there's only one male actor in the entire film that plays every male character from the dad to the mom's boyfriend to the daughter's boyfriend. You know, he j- he's the stand-in for all men. <laughs> and there is a moment, though, where he gets too uncomfortable to continue. And it's a, it's a very difficult scene in which the girls are very emotional, but they're ready to talk about it. And it's a scene about what their stepfather or their mother's boyfriend did to them. So Mejd Mastura, who's playing the stepfather in this scene or the the mother's boyfriend in this scene, gets up and says, Kauthar, I can't continue. I'm not going to film. And Aya says, why? This will help me. This will help me work through it. Was there any moment in that scene where you thought, maybe this is too far? How do I create art from this pain without causing more pain? And I wondered if you struggled with that question. Yeah, it was uh, my main obsession. And especially in this scene, uh, she say this incredible sentence, uh, pointing the meta-documentary side, saying he's an actor, tell him I'm just an actress uh, and this is our uh, line I'm saying. So it, it's uh, tell him it's not my life so he can come wow. back. And we were all confused and scared, uh, me and the actor. And this little girl is there telling us how it's important for her to tell this thing. Is there anything that you would want the world to know about this story as we talk about the film and for people who haven't seen the film yet, that they should know about the story of Ulf Hamrani and her four daughters? Um, I mean, I did this movie uh, without 
prejudgment. I tried to understand, and uh, I went through uh, a journey of uh, all the spectrum of emotion. The movie is funny. We laugh a lot. Yeah. The movie is so emotional. We cry. Uh, so I wanted to share all what I felt and all what I understood also with the audience. And I think the movie is not um, the story of ISIS is only the tip of the iceberg. Right. Uh, all the movie till the end is about mother-daughter relationship where any mother, any daughter can recognize herself in the movie. It's also about coming of age, um, which is a universal thing. So I think that the movie success is because the movie is tackling very universal uh, topic while being very Tunisian, very local at the same time. Tunisian filmmaker Kauthar Benhania on her Oscar-nominated film, Four Daughters. She says that Ulfa is continuing to advocate for her oldest daughters to be returned home to Tunisia. They were just children when they joined ISIS, and now one is raising her own child in prison in Libya. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBMR's Morning Edition, why conservation groups are teaming up with ranchers and even, even big beef buyers to protect native grasses. It's 7.29. Join Radio Boston host Tisan Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th for a conversation with Maria Inojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. It's highly unlikely the Democratic-led Senate will convict impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House lawmakers passed two articles of impeachment, accusing Mayorkas of willfully refusing to comply with the law and breach of public trust, both over his handling of the record number of migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border. The impeachment resolution passed by a razor-thin margin. This is Speaker Mike Johnson. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. A House impeachment vote failed last week when Republicans didn't have enough votes. Vice President Harris is traveling to Germany today for a series of meetings with U.S. allies. Harris is expected to deliver a key message at the Munich Security Conference. The trip comes after recent comments by former President Donald Trump raised concerns about the U.S.'s long-term commitment to the NATO alliance. NPR's Asma Khalid says Vice President Harris is trying to convince NATO allies that the U.S. is a reliable partner. This White House promised that the Trump era was over, you know, that America was back. So I will say there is a lot at stake, both for the Biden administration's reputation and the United States' credibility as a world leader. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting. 
You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is Frederick Douglass Day in Massachusetts. This afternoon, the state Senate will unveil a bust of the abolitionist and statesman. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports it'll be permanently displayed in the Senate chamber where Douglass spoke in 1894. A quote from Douglas remains painted in the Senate chamber today. It reads, Truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. Statehouse art curator Susan Greendike-Lashev calls the bust of Douglas a wonderful addition. It is particularly important to me because it represents an expansion of the collection beyond the elected and military into the civic service memorials. Senate President Karen Spilka's office says Douglas's likeness is the first state-commissioned bust of a black person in the statehouse and the first bust to be added to the Senate chamber in more than 125 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The newest nominee to the state Supreme Judicial Court goes before the Governor's Council next week. The group will interview Gabrielle Wolohosian at a statehouse confirmation hearing on Wednesday. Governor Maura Healy has been criticized for the nomination. She and Wolohosian dated for several years. Wolohosian is a lawyer who served 16 years on the appeals court. Today is Valentine's Day at the New England Aquarium. That means breeding season for African penguins. WBR's Barbara Moran reports the aquarium is one of about 50 facilities nationwide working to protect the species from extinction. Every year, aquarium staff pick a few penguin couples that would make the best contribution to the species' genetic diversity. Then they whisk them away to a penguin love den. And play some soft music, a little berry white. Eric Fox is the aquarium's assistant curator of penguins. He says the season's first egg has arrived. It's from Durbin and Harlequin, a penguin couple that's been together almost 25 years. We're all excited to know that, uh, you know, 40 days from now, come early March, uh, we are going to hopefully see an egg emerge into a chick. If the egg hatches, it'll be Durbin and Harlequin's ninth chick together. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. The Celtics are celebrating an eight-point victory in Brooklyn. They beat the Nets last night 118-110. to The two teams will face off again in Boston tonight at 7.30. The Bruins fell to the Tampa Bay Lightning last night in a shootout. Final score was 3-2. to Windy with highs in the low 30s today. Skies will be mostly overcast through about mid-morning. Then clouds gradually move out. Still windy and clear tonight in the low 20s. It'll gradually grow overcast throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Let's ask about the real-world effects of one of the conflicts around the Middle East. Houthi militants in Yemen have been attacking commercial ships passing by their shores in the Red Sea. It's one of the world's busiest trade routes leading to the Suez Canal. This week, Houthis fired missiles at a Brazilian vessel full of corn. The United States and other nations have ships on hand to respond, but what have shipping companies and their customers done? NPR's David Gura is following that aspect of it. Hi there, David. Good morning, Steve. How are companies responding? Well, quite quickly, one shipping analyst told me, and quite uniformly, many container ships are now being routed all the way around Africa instead of through the Suez Canal, where traffic fell by 43% last month. That's according to the IMF. And more recently, we've seen vessels carrying food and grain also take this longer route, along with tankers full of oil and liquefied natural gas. They're going this way because it's seen as safer, even with this new international coalition patrolling the Red Sea. But because it's a farther distance, Steve, thousands of miles longer, it's also more expensive, requiring more fuel and extra insurance. How much stress is that putting on the global supply chain? Well, it's a strain. In normal times, about 10% of the world's cargo goes through the Red Sea. But I want to stress, this is nothing like the delays and disruptions and difficulties companies dealt with during the pandemic. That said, these attacks are definitely having an impact on trade across many different industries, and especially in Europe, because many of the goods European countries import from Asia and the Middle East travel through the Red Sea. A few weeks ago, Tesla, Volvo had to pause production at factories in Europe, and Hmm. IKEA, the furniture maker, says these disruptions are going to lead to delays. Uh, And for shipments that are more time-sensitive, for goods that are perishable, we're seeing companies using airplanes instead of ships. Airplanes. Okay, so how big a deal is all of this for the United States? Well, so far, analysts and industry groups say it's been manageable, but they are worried about what would happen if this were to drag on. Eric Beyer heads the Alliance for Chemical Distribution, and he says companies are having a harder time getting citric acid, a lot of which is made in China and India. That's used in things like the vitamin water and the Gatorade that we drink after we work out. Along with other chemicals that are used in cleaning supplies, This is also a challenging situation for U.S. exporters who ship goods overseas. At a recent hearing in Washington, Eric Barch, who's with the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, said it's gotten harder and more expensive to export beans and chickpeas because of all the disruptions. This leaves the exporters scrambling for alternative routes and possibly paying, you know, upcharges for route changes. Trade associations say their members have absorbed these higher costs. They've been resilient, but, Steve, they're not sure how long that can last. Okay, I'm kind of fascinated, really, (laughs) David, to learn that my Gatorade or my 409 or my window cleaner uh, are based on some ingredients from around the world, a global supply chain. But what happens if this standoff goes on and on? It's likely companies will start to pass on those higher costs to their customers, and this is what's most concerning to economists. We've seen the Fed and other central banks move so aggressively to bring down inflation, and these disruptions could lead to higher prices. There is no indication of a big spike, but the risks increase the longer this lasts. And what's making this disruption more challenging is it's happening at a time when there are other sources of strain. Halfway around the world, a third fewer ships are going through the Panama Canal because of a drought. But Darcy McLaren, who consults with two dozen industries on supply chain issues at SAP Global, says companies are taking a new, more proactive approach post-pandemic. We've really changed how we view the supply chain. It's no longer about cost and efficiency. It's really about risk prevention. These companies are actively identifying other routes, different suppliers, so they can pivot if they need to, Steve, which is what we've seen here. NPR's David Gura, thanks as always. Thank you.
Ukrainian soldiers often spend weeks, even months, separated from their partners. So whenever they get a day or two off from the trenches, many of their loved ones rush to eastern cities near the front line on what Ukrainians call the train of love. NPR's Joanna Kakissis sends us this wartime lover's postcard. No, I shouldn't say that. No, not this. We meet Ina Yermolovich and Yulia Dmitrieva a week before Valentine's Day. They've booked their train tickets from Ukraine's capital, Kiev, to the east, where they will meet their husbands, soldiers who serve in the same unit. I enjoy even looking how he drinking tea or how he's putting his shoes on. I like to see how he's moving, uh, just to see he's breathing. That's Ina, a 30-something import manager, talking about her husband, Dima, their newlyweds. After one month, don't see each other, we, we lose in mind. So if the situation give us this possibility to see each other, I catch this chance. <laughs> this is Yulia. She's 49, works in IT, and has red-tinted dreadlocks. Yeah, I'm actually a spontaneous person, so I can today decide and go tomorrow, because sometimes he doesn't know in advance that he will be out. Yulia and her husband Vadim have been together for nearly 14 years. He's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, he's very creative, and he makes people around him happy. The women boarded train headed to the Donetsk region, where the war's fiercest fighting is going on. The train is filled with the partners of soldiers fighting there. And here we are at the city of Slovyansk, the train's second-to-last stop. Ina's husband Dima is there, too. She's the best thing in my life, he says. She's what I'm fighting for and what I live for. Then Yulia's husband Vadim arrives, running to the train of love to meet her. Like Yulia, he also has dreadlocks, but his are dyed blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Vadim's face lights up when he sees his wife. <laughs> they kiss, and Ina and Dima embrace. There are reunions all day at the Slovyansk train station. And at the train's final stop, the city of Kramatorsk. Every day at these two stations is Valentine's Day. Shops that sell flowers and chocolates are always busy, making as much money as they did before the war. In a cafe with their wives, Vadim and Dima say wartime separation has ended too many marriages. Dima says some wives go abroad and build new lives. And Vadim brings up a soldier in their unit who divorced his wife. She made us all these bracelets, Vadim says, holding up his wrist. After we returned from a difficult combat mission, something snapped in him, and he said he could no longer talk to her. Then they changed the subject. Dima and Ina talk about having kids. Vadim and Yulia plan to adopt. But two years of war have also lowered expectations for the future. The main thing now is just to stay alive, Vadim says, and that's what we plan to do. At the station, the next train of love arrives. Soldiers holding flowers line the platform, waiting for the doors to open.
Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Sloviansk, Ukraine. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, the Republican-controlled House has voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the Biden administration's handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. Mostly cloudy skies gradually clear today. It'll be windy and in the low 30s. Tonight, clear skies and low 20s. Tomorrow, clouds move back in throughout the day, and it'll be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The ride-hailing service Lyft will allow customers in Boston to request female and non-binary drivers. The company launched the feature in a limited number of cities in September, and it went nationwide today. Lyft says it helps both drivers and women and non-binary riders feel safer. Framingham-based Staples plans to partner with Charlestown-based Right Hand Robotics. The office supply retailer says it's partnering with the robotics company for streamlined packaging technology. Neither company has released the financials of the multi-year agreement. A longtime steakhouse in Auburn plans to close. Chuck's Steakhouse and Margarita Grill will shut its doors at the end of this month. The restaurant has been open for nearly half a century. The owners tell the Telegram and Gazette the property was sold to the town to create a new fire department headquarters. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Millions of acres of grassland used to spread across the high plains in this country. There's still some left, but also seeds of corn and wheat growing instead, and most of that is used for livestock feed. So conservationists and big businesses are collaborating with cattle ranchers to save what's left of native grasslands. Kaylin Moore of the Kansas News Service explains why this is important. Dozens of cows spread out across Kelly Anthony's ranch. As he drives his truck through the pasture, he blasts a siren to get the attention of the herd. It calls the cattle to our feed grounds down here because in the winter, the grass loses its protein in the winter, so we have to supplement them. As the siren blares, the cattle come running. Anthony has been ranching this grassland in southwest Kansas for 25 years. Its land is part of the five states that make up the southern high plains. Kansas, plus Colorado, New Mexico, and the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles. Native grass used to cover 71 million acres of the region, but there has been lots of change over the years. For example, in Kansas, 80% of those grasslands have been lost to cropland, drought, or invasive species. Ranchers like Anthony own much that remains, and he's trying to restore some of it. I really think that ranchers as a whole are the best stewards of the land, 
because the capital requirement to be in the cattle business is so high, the biggest portion of that is land. Ranchers aren't the only ones concerned. The global nonprofit, The Nature Conservancy, and several other groups are working to save what is left of the ecosystem too with a program called the Southern High Plains Grassland Initiative. The program uses market-based incentives and enters into years-long agreements with ranchers, offering them payments if they preserve grassland or convert crops back to grass. Sitting at a local coffee shop, project manager Matt Bain says that the overlooked grasslands are the most imperiled native ecosystem on Earth, but they provide a lot of benefits. Things like clean air, clean water, carbon storage, recreation, you know, obviously food supply in the form of beef and other livestock primarily. So far, the initiative has invested $42 million across the five states to help keep those benefits intact. Slightly more than a quarter of that money has come from big beef buyers like Burger King and Cargill in partnership with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Burger King and Cargill say they're joining with the hopes that protecting native grasses can help reduce some of the impact beef has on the environment like water loss, soil pollution, and greenhouse gas emissions that come from grain-eating cattle. Deborah Fleischer is the president of Green Impact, a consulting firm that helps businesses with green initiatives. I think it's beyond philanthropy for some of these bigger companies now and just part of their carbon reduction strategy, which probably has to look at a whole variety of how are we going to get emissions down, especially if we're expanding. She says when large companies invest in green projects, it is also an opportunity to improve their public image. Even so, some ranchers are skeptical of the collaboration between conservation groups and beef buyers because it limits what they can do with their land. Others like Bob Winderland think the grassland initiative is the right approach. The longtime rancher is a participant in the program and says his land in western Kansas will potentially see less long-term impacts of drought and water loss. Winderland says conservation is not only the key to preserving grasslands, but also the rural ranching lifestyle. I guess we're smart enough to realize that we got to conserve what we have or we end up with nothing, you know. In the scale of this initiative to preserve millions of acres of native grassland in the southern high plains is one of the largest conservation opportunities in the country. For NPR News, I'm Kaylin Moore in Liberal, Kansas. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up in about half an hour here on Morning Edition, a new study finds that Tai Chi is better than conventional aerobic exercise at lowering blood pressure in some middle-aged people. It's 749. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. House Republicans voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by just one vote. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Munich today for the annual Munich Security Conference. 
And Democrat Tom Swayze won a special election for a U.S. House seat in New York, filling a vacancy left by Republican George Santos after he was expelled from Congress last year. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Windy and low 30s today with skies that'll gradually clear throughout the day. Still windy tonight in the low 20s with clear skies. Upper 30s tomorrow. Skies will grow increasingly overcast. It's 33 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pomfret School, a top-ranked private high school for boarding and day students in northeastern Connecticut. Discover a more human way to prepare for college and life at pomfret.org. You're listening to WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. What makes someone love Boston? For Valentine's Day, our Ideas and Opinions team asked readers and listeners to share their favorite Boston stories. They wanted to know what it means to live and find your place here. As part of our field guide to Boston, here are some of the responses. When I decided to move to Boston in 2018 from San Diego, people warned me that New Englanders can be unfriendly. But that hasn't been my experience, especially on public transportation. It's true. The next Orange Line train to Oak Grove is now arriving. I once saw a guy trip while running for an Orange Line train. He landed on the platform just outside the doors, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like Frisbees in every direction. My fellow T-Riders watched this happen over our phones and books and donuts. Then the three of us nearest him, without a word, decided on our roles. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. He thanked us each with a glance and a nod, and then we went back to what we had been doing. I got off at the next stop. My name is Christina Ganim. My name is Alicia Abbott. My family and I lived in New York City for nearly two decades before we came to Boston in 2009. We had only planned to stay for my husband's one-year fellowship, but at the end of that year, we didn't want to go back. For a long while, I still considered myself a displaced New Yorker. But at some point, Boston did feel like home. At Fresh Pond Reservoir in Cambridge, we met Park Ranger Jean, Before she retired five years ago, you might have crossed paths with her, too. She might have even written you a ticket. Driving around in her ranger cart, she made sure all the dogs and their owners followed the rules. My son, Finn, isn't good at following the rules. He was diagnosed with autism before he was two. And at 12 years old, few boys moved as he moved, rocking from front foot to back. Few boys would suddenly scream to show excitement. Whenever Ranger Jean saw Finn running toward her golf cart, she didn't flinch. She smiled. And she often invited Finn to ride along with her, which he loved. In this small act, she seemed to say, I see you in all your difference. You and your family belong here at Fresh Pond as much as the birders and the bikers, the runners and the walkers, the picnickers and the dog people. This park is your park, too. 
My name is Ethan Gilsdorf. I grew up in Seacoast, New Hampshire. My parents got divorced when I was six. As a little kid, we often visited Boston for the day, the Aquarium, Museum of Science, or Fenway Park. The summer I was 12, my mother moved to Cambridge so she could attend grad school at Harvard. In October, an aneurysm ruptured in her brain. I spent the better part of a year visiting her at Mass General. She survived, but barely. For years after, the city felt cursed, haunted, a do-not-enter zone. As an adult, I lived in Western Mass, Louisiana, Vermont, and France. But I finally re-entered the emotionally radioactive mom zone when I was 38, the exact age my mom was when she moved to Boston. Newly single, I found a cheap one-bedroom in Somerville. I wanted a fresh start, just like my mother had. My name is Kat Rutkin. I drive a little pink hatchback. It's a Chevy Spark, and it's pretty recognizable, so I try not to be too much of a jerk when I'm out on the road. I grew up in New York, and I got my license when I was 16, but I didn't really use it for 10 years because I lived in Manhattan. I always thought New York was going to be the worst driving I'd ever experienced, but it was not. Last week, I almost got run off of a city street while I was driving my kids to school. When you're driving in Boston, nobody gives away their next move. I moved to Boston in 2011 from Brooklyn. Then in the summer of 2021, I was driving to a doctor's appointment on Starro Drive. I knew I was going to be late. I dodged through traffic with no blinker and I didn't let anyone merge. I'd always been a steady and cautious driver. It took me 10 years, but now I'm just as unpredictable as anybody else. During the pandemic, my partner Jimmy and I got into the routine of ordering takeout from a Noah Poke shop in Somerville every weekend. We fell in love with the freshness and simplicity of the food. Over time, the staff would recognize our eyes and voices from beneath our masks. One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. If I came for a pickup without Jimmy, the staff would ask, Where's Jimmy? Tell him to come by next week. Our stops at Manoa came to feel like visits to a relative's house. Fast forward three years and Jimmy and I still order from our Manoa family every weekend. My name is Tui Fan. My name is Dart Adams. I grew up at 47 Mass Ave on the border of South End and Lower Roxbury. I lived down the street from the South End Lower Roxbury chapter to NAACP. The elders in my neighborhood told me stories about how Sammy Davis Jr., Quincy Jones, Martin Luther King Jr., and Credit Scott King all lived in the neighborhood. One of my neighbors, Mel King, ran for mayor against Ray Flynn in 1983. I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston space funk, reggae, calypso, soca, salsa, merengue, electro, freestyle, Latin hip-hop, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. My neighbors were mostly black and Latino. We had a sizable LGBTQ community that lived among us too. We were all neighbors and everyone looked out for each other. I love history and telling stories that don't always get told because that's what I learned from my community growing up in Boston. Picture this, where it all started was back in Boston, Massachusetts. 
That was Christina Gannam, Alicia Abbott, Ethan Gilsdorf, Kent Rutkin, Tui Fon, and Dart Adams. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. For more love letters to the city, check out WBUR's Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Low 30s today with gusty winds and cloudy skies that'll start to clear around noon. Low 20s tonight and still windy with clear skies. Upper 30s tomorrow and skies will gradually grow cloudy. It's 30 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum with Our Time on Earth, an immersive exhibition about creativity and our planet's future. Open Saturday, PEM.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Republican-led House has impeached the Homeland Security Secretary by one vote. It's Wednesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up in New York, Democrat Tom Swazi wins the race to succeed former GOP Congressman George Santos, who was expelled from the House last year. Also this hour, a new study finds Tai Chi may be better at reducing blood pressure than jogging or cycling. Being in the moment, being able to relax, being aware of what you're doing kind of just helps calm a person down. And for Valentine's Day, we go to the New England Aquarium for African penguin breeding season. So they have been together for over 24 years. Um, So their 25th anniversary is coming up soon, um, and they have just kind of been inseparable. Clearing skies and 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Democrats flipped a Republican seat in a special election in New York yesterday. This was to replace ousted Congressman George Santos. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports border security was a leading issue. Democrat Tom Suozzi told supporters on Long Island the voters are focused on immigration and the economy and want lawmakers to work on bipartisan solutions. It's time to move beyond the petty partisan bickering and the finger pointing. It's time to focus on how to solve the problems. The former three-term House member defeated Republican Nassau County legislator Mozzie Pillup and criticized her for opposing the bipartisan Senate border bill. Moderate suburban voters in this district say the influx of migrants into New York City is impacting the local economy and jobs. Swazi's strategy could be a model for other swing races in November. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. House Republicans have impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They succeeded on their second try by a single vote. The first impeachment vote last week failed. GOP lawmakers claim Mayorkas has allowed migrants to illegally cross the border. He's not expected to be removed from office by the democratically-led Senate. President Biden is urging the House to vote on a foreign aid package that offers help to Ukraine, Israel, and some Pacific nations. But House Speaker Mike Johnson is refusing. Some Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump say they want to block it. But House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries says that's not true of all Republicans. 
He says if the foreign aid bill was on the House floor this moment, it would get a lot of Republican support. There are more than 300 bipartisan votes in the House of Representatives to pass the national security bill today. But Democrats are in the minority in the House, and forcing a bill to the floor for a vote over Republican objections is difficult. Ukraine's military claims it has destroyed a large Russian landing ship in the Black Sea off the coast of occupied Crimea. The Kremlin has not commented. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports from Kharkiv that Ukraine has regained control of parts of the Black Sea by targeting the Russian Navy and its infrastructure. The Ukrainian military announced the hit on their official channel on Telegram, a social messaging site. The target was a large Russian landing ship called the Cesar Kunikov. It can accommodate up to 87 crew members, but it's not clear how many were aboard. Ukraine says it used maritime strike drones in the operation. Earlier in the day, Russia's defense ministry said it had destroyed six drones there. These naval drones have helped Ukraine drive Russian warships out of parts of the Black Sea. That's helped open a shipping corridor for Ukraine's grain exports, which Ukrainian authorities say are now at pre-war levels. Joanna Kikissis reporting. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Polls are open for a special election in Milton today at issue whether to comply with a state law meant to increase housing by creating zones for multifamily housing near transit stations. Milton is the only community in greater Boston that's out of compliance with the law because it didn't enact a plan by the end of last year. We're now from WBUR's Lynn Jolliker. Milton Town Meeting passed a plan in December to comply with the MBTA Communities Act. But residents who oppose the plan to create multifamily housing near the T gathered enough signatures to hold a special election to squash it. They say Milton shouldn't be considered a transit community because it's only served by the Mattapan trolley. And they say the housing would increase traffic. Town Meeting member Liz Dillon supports the housing plan and the law that required it. I feel like it is a just law. I feel like it will increase diversity, both in terms of housing stock and the people who live in our town. And I think it's the morally right thing to do. The state has said it might sue Milton if it doesn't abide by the law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Authorities in Kenya have recaptured a man wanted for killing a woman in Massachusetts. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office says Kevin Kingathe ran away to Kenya after he killed his girl gra- girlfriend, Margaret Mbitu. Her body was found in a car at Logan Airport in November. Kingathe was arrested in Kenya last month but escaped custody a week ago. Power is back for almost everyone in Massachusetts following yesterday's winter storm. Just over 1,000 people remain without electricity, mainly on the Cape. Cleanup efforts are underway in areas that saw coastal flooding. Situate town manager Jim Brudeau says town employees are working to clear debris left after the storm. Those low-lying areas where we have debris, we have uh, loaders and plows out there cleaning those streets off. And then our DPW crews, the sanders and salters are all loaded up. So if we start getting freezing, uh, they'll go out and treat the road. We're in the cleanup mode now. And then treating the ice, if we have to do that, we'll get into that uh, when it happens. In greater Boston, coastal flooding left parts of the seaport and Dorchester underwater.
Senator Ed Markey is urging the Department of Energy to make it easier for formerly incarcerated people to work in the clean energy sector. He wrote to the federal energy secretary that laws across the country block people with criminal records from getting the necessary licenses for those jobs. He says removing these barriers would allow the U.S. to expand use of renewables in the communities most impacted by fossil fuel pollution. It's 8.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. The Celtics won their fifth straight game last night in Brooklyn. Final score against the Nets was 118-110. to The teams will face off again tonight. This time the Seas will host at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning last night in a shootout. Final score was 3-2. to Mostly cloudy through the morning today, but skies will clear into the afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 30s, and it'll also be windy. Tonight's still windy, and temperatures fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow, clouds move back in throughout the day. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Republican-led House voted along party lines last night to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. The articles of impeachment passed by that single vote accuse Mayorkas of refusing to comply with immigration laws. Now, according to the text, more people are coming to the United States these days, and the administration has paroled many into the U.S. to wait for their court dates. Past administrations have also paroled people because the U.S. lacks enough detention centers to hold migrants or courts to give them quick hearings. Democrats and a few Republicans cast this as a policy disagreement rather than an impeachable offense. NPR political reporter Jimena Wastillo has more on this, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So as we heard there, House Republicans barely had enough votes to impeach Mayorkas last night, and this is their second try. How did this impeachment become such a focus for the party? Well, Republicans have been preparing for this impeachment since they gained control of the House. The Republican base and conservative media figures have been calling for the impeachment of several Biden administration officials, including Mayorkas and Biden himself, since the 2022 midterm elections. But with Democrats running the Senate and Biden in the White House, they really have no way to change laws. Instead, they've really focused on investigations and oversight as a way to follow through on promises to hold the Biden administration accountable. This impeachment, though, has been a bit divisive even among their own members. Three Republicans voted against impeachment last night, and the same three voted no last week. The difference this time was House Majority Leader Steve Scalise was back in town after lengthy absence to seek treatment for cancer. I mean, this is highly unusual. The first time a sitting secretary is impeached in 150 years. What laws is Mayorkas actually accused of breaking here? They're accusing Mayorkas of not complying with immigration law, particularly when it comes to detainments and of making false statements. At this point, as Steve pointed out, this is a time where many more people are just showing up at the border and the Republicans are saying Mayorkas is paroling too many of them. Is this just a policy disagreement? Should it be an impeachment? 
Right. Democrats are arguing that this is politically motivated, as you noted, and it has been over 100 years since an impeachment of its kind. Democrats in the House insist that this is not the right response. They say Republicans have a policy disagreement with the White House. And the same three Republicans who have rejected this measure have generally raised concerns about the strength of the case against Mayorkas. There have also been concerns about the standards set by impeaching him over policies that, again, are set by Biden and not Mayorkas himself. But Speaker Johnson defended the process last week, and he said that Mayorkas refuses to enforce the laws and left them with no other option. The Homeland Security Department last night said after the vote that they believe there's no shred of evidence of this. Okay, so this happened in the House. It's going to the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats. So does it just die there? It does not. So there are impeachment managers that have already assigned, and there is a Senate trial that will begin sometime after the senators return to D.C. around the 26th. But a conviction requires two-thirds vote, and that simply will not happen in the Senate controlled by Democrats. Okay, so this all fits into a broader jockeying between the two parties over who's to blame for the border. Is there any expectation that Congress can actually address some of these policy issues before the election? I mean, that's extremely unlikely. We saw a bipartisan border security agreement fail last week in the Senate. Senate Democrats uh, have rejected the House option version of the bill, which they say is too hardline. And Biden has vowed to veto that as well. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. Senate approved aid for Taiwan this week, along with Ukraine and Israel. Unlike the other two U.S. allies, Taiwan is not at war, but is preparing for the possibility. Mainland China claims the island for its own. We got one perspective on the conflict here in Washington when we walked in the doorway of a white Victorian house. Good afternoon. Thank you so much. Staff members led us through the wood-paneled entry hall of Twin Oaks, a mansion associated with China for generations. We started to rent this place out back in, I believe, in the 1930s for residents of our ambassador. In those days, nationalist China, the Republic of China, ruled the mainland. Later, communists won a civil war. The nationalists fled to Taiwan and had to struggle even to keep control of this house in Washington. In a ceremonial room here, we met Alexander Yu, Taiwan's representative, and we talked about the tension with Beijing. We know the dangers, but we won't be the ones causing or giving an excuse to do what they want to do. Yu recently arrived in Washington, where he will represent a newly elected president. Lai Ching-te is of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is said to favor Taiwan's independence. His victory added to tensions with mainland China, which views Taiwan as its breakaway province. When we spoke with Alexander Yu, the veteran diplomat offered a formula for talking about Taiwan's status. There's really no point in proclaiming another independence because proclaiming independence means that we are currently subject to someone, which we are not. (laughs) Meaning you don't have to declare independence because you are independent. We we have been. We have been. We sipped coffee from China cups and asked the representative what that stance could mean. The U.S. supports Taiwan without formally recognizing it as a country, part of its intricate diplomacy with the mainland. Taiwan is, in fact, already independent, and its name is Republic of China, which is what we have been for decades. 
This is all about ambiguity, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's about maintaining status quo and maintaining the identity of who we are, which we have never been subject or part of the People's Republic of China, and that is a fact. My colleague Elsa Chang recently reported for NPR in Taiwan and spoke with someone who was senior in the ruling party sure. who said, we don't want independence, what we want is autonomy, democracy. Is that correct? We have a democratic system that has evolved from a former system to a democratic system. And the people of Taiwan are used to it and it's, it's part of the, our lives and be able to choose every four years our president to choose its legislators and mayors, etc. And we don't want that lifestyle to be changed. And unfortunately, people in Republic of China, what they want is to change that way of life for the Taiwanese people. Believe it or not, up to now, Beijing still offering us to be united as one China, as they say, under the one country, two systems formula. As they had for Hong Kong, Hong Kong. for a period. And look at what Hong Kong has become. <laughs> so there's no market for that in, in, in Taiwan. If people want the status quo, if your government wants the status quo, even though it's known as a pro-independence party, why do you think it is that the People's Republic of China has been issuing warnings, accusing you of going down the road to independence, conducting military exercises, on and on? Well, I think their view of Taiwan or the ruling party wanting independence for Taiwan or anyone in Taiwan, let's put it this way, anyone who doesn't want to be part of the People's Republic of China. For them, those are pro-independence activists. A year or two ago, early in Russia's war against Ukraine, there was a lot of tension and fear here about a possible war between mainland China and Taiwan. Maybe not immediately, but the fear that it was on the horizon, that it was coming. Has that fear diminished? You mean from the West or us? Are you, are you less worried? than you were. No, I mean, we're always, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the mainland China has been, they have created this, this tension because, uh, for example, the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan. It's not something new. It's something that they don't like and they decided to change things around in the Taiwan Strait. For example, increasing the number of or, or sending uh, ships and fighter planes across the median line into Taiwan's identification zone, sending these balloons, you know, it has been increasing in their incidents in sending balloons over Taiwan's airspace. Recently, they, uh, without consulting Taiwan, unilaterally changed the, the air route. It's called M503, which is it's a civilian airline air route that goes from north to south from China. They moved it closer to Taiwan's side. You think they're encroaching on? Sure, they're, they're, they're the ones changing the status quo between our, our cross-trade relations. Your outgoing president did make a remark recently, though, suggesting that China was effectively too busy to attack Taiwan, that China was overwhelmed with other problems. Do you think that an invasion is not likely anytime soon? Well, people in Republic of China, they do have many issues at hand, including their own domestic issues. So I would hope that they would concentrate more on their own domestic issues, fixing their own problems, instead of creating these nervous, sensitive situations across the Taiwan Strait. In our talk, Taiwan's representative kept one eye on that nervous, sensitive situation and one on the other nervous situation, politics in Washington. 
Until now, support for Taiwan has been bipartisan. President Trump started a trade war with communist China. President Biden kept Trump's tariffs in place and approved new military aid to Taiwan. But as the presidential campaign proceeds, Republicans have increasingly spoken against all foreign aid, and former President Trump accused Taiwan of stealing U.S. business. We did ask Alexander Yu what he makes of politics here. He diplomatically expressed the hope that U.S. support will continue whoever wins this fall. It's Valentine's Day, and on this day we swipe through some dating apps to hear about the possible uses of artificial intelligence. A dating coach dishes on this trend. Listen to the story later today on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. We're following news of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas' impeachment in the House. And U.S. officials say arrests for illegal crossings on the U.S. border with Mexico fell by half in January from record highs in December. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we go to New York, where Democrat Tom Swazi has won a seat left vacant when former GOP Congressman George Santos was expelled from Congress. It's 819. WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENS's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming, Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. And Bowery Boston, presenting the magnetic fields, performing 69 love songs at Roadrunner on March 25th. For more info, visit roadrunner.com. Caitlin Clark, the women's college basketball player, is on the verge of breaking the scoring record. The hype is palpable, and fans are putting their money down. We got them for off a student. They were $9 seats, and I think we paid $2.50 apiece. <laughs> we didn't care. We didn't care. We didn't care. More on the Caitlin Clark effect on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We start out mostly cloudy today, but skies will gradually clear through the afternoon. Highs will be in the low 30s, and it'll be windy. Skies stay clear tonight. Temperatures will be in the low 20s. Tomorrow it grows overcast again, and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California or from all agents. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. 
And I'm Leila Faldin. Tai Chi is a traditional form of Chinese martial arts, and it's known to increase flexibility and improve balance. New research suggests it may be better than more vigorous aerobic exercise in lowering blood pressure. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. Tai Chi combines slow, gentle movements with mindfulness. It's often referred to as meditation in motion. Ruth Taylor Piliae of the University of Arizona researches Tai Chi's many health benefits. Oh my gosh, less depression, anxiety, less stress, better social support, just so many things. Now, a new study published in the journal JAMA Network Open finds that Tai Chi is even better at reducing blood pressure than exercises like jogging, cycling, and brisk walking. The study looked at 342 people in China with pre-hypertension. That's when blood pressure is higher than normal, but it doesn't quite reach the level of high blood pressure. It's considered a warning sign that heart disease may be ahead. Roughly half of the people in the study did supervised aerobic exercise, while the other half were trained to practice Tai Chi. Both groups got hour-long sessions four times a week. After 12 months, the Tai Chi group saw bigger drops in their blood pressure than the aerobic exercise group, and more people in the Tai Chi group saw their blood pressure readings fall into the normal range compared with the aerobics group. So what is it about Tai Chi that helps lower blood pressure? Taylor Piliae says Tai Chi tends to elicit more of a response from the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the network of nerves that relaxes your body after periods of stress or danger. Being in the moment, focusing on the Tai Chi, being able to relax, being aware of what you're doing kind of just helps calm a person down. And I think some of those things is what really helps with the blood pressure lowering effect. She says that Tai Chi is appealing as a form of exercise because it's low impact and requires little space or equipment. I think the beauty of Tai Chi is that you don't have to have a special gym membership. You don't have to have special clothing. Once you learn the Tai Chi, you can do it anytime, any place, anywhere. And it does kind of provide that calming, relaxing thing. But to reap the health benefits, you have to practice Tai Chi consistently. Maria Godoy, NPR News. On this Valentine's Day, Brittany Luce of the NPR podcast It's Been a Minute is here with a Valentine's Day bouquet of romance origin stories. Mark Redant was rebuilding his life in the late 1980s. Divorced with a young son and facing eviction from his apartment, the 37-year-old was making ends meet selling Chryslers in Olathe, Kansas. I was a single guy and I just thought, well, see if I can sell a car. Then, LaDonna arrived. I certainly wasn't looking for a date or a future partner. LaDonna bought herself a red and silver Plymouth Sundance as a graduation present. When she picked it up, I'd put a big ribbon around it and made a card and everybody in the dealership signed it because she was just so cute. The pair eventually married and moved to Kansas City. The car stayed with them for years, during which it was stolen three separate times. The third time was somebody stole that car and they drove it through a stone wall at a high school and set the car on fire. I mean, it was sad because obviously this was kind of the uh, physical object that um, our whole relationship started around. The couple did keep one memento from the beginning of their relationship, a card from the dealership LaDonna used to rate Mark's customer service. I commented that I think he was looking for a date more than he was looking to, you know, make sure that, you know, I had the undercoating. 
A singles party for gay men sparked a love story, but not for who you might think. Karen Morris was in her early 20s, a graduate student at Stanford. She didn't even feel like going out that night, but she was at the party for her friend, who told her he needed a wing woman. I thought I was the only woman there, and there was probably like, I don't know, 60 men. Partygoers left notes on a bulletin board to make it easier to meet each other. And among all the notes the men had written to each other, one stood out. Somebody at some point came over and was like, Karen, there's a note for you. And I'm like, what? And that was when she spotted one other woman at the party. And so I found Christina and we went outside. Karen discovered that Christina was there as a wing woman for her guy friend too. From then on, we just started hanging out. And then finally, one of my really good friends said, um, I think you really like her. And I'm like, huh, I think I do. And that's been over 25 years now. Since that Stanford party, Karen and Christina moved around the world together, had two kids, two dogs and a cat, and got married. It's been kind of a long journey for us. And so I look back at it and so I think it makes me really happy. It makes me really proud. When he was a teenager, Michael Boyd from Dumfries, Virginia, was in a car accident that left him paralyzed on his left side and affected his short-term memory. You know, I did nothing. I had no friends or anything. So my dad was like, you know what, why don't you get on the internet? Maybe you'll find somebody. And I'm like, oh yeah, right, whatever. This was 1996, the days of dial-up internet. His dad suggests he hop into an online chat room. Remember those? Michael logs on and before long, he's chatting with internet strangers. He keeps seeing a screen name pop up in the chat room, Tammy. I was in college at the time, writing papers in the computer lab. I didn't know what a chat room was. Michael gets the courage to message Tammy. They're around the same age. Michael is 22, Tammy is 21. He learns that she lives 800 miles away in Palmyra, Wisconsin. They chat together about life, Michael's accident, their interests. Sometimes they chat all night. We racked up $200 phone bills. <laughs> Over a year later, they decide to meet in person. Our families were kind of like, are you sure? By their second in-person meeting, Michael proposed to Tammy. Last August, Tammy and Michael celebrated their 25th anniversary. Brooke, our youngest, she said she tells everybody our story because they didn't even think the internet was around back then. <laughs> a few love stories from Brittany Luce of the NPR podcast, It's Been a Minute. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. We mark Valentine's Day with a trip to the New England Aquarium where it's breeding season for African penguins. It's 829. Coming to City Space this Friday, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. President Biden is calling the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas a blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship. The House passed the articles of impeachment by a single vote last night over the secretary's handling of the border. NPR's Jimena Bustillo says the chances of the Senate convicting Mayorkas are slim. There is a Senate trial that will begin sometime after the senators return to D.C. Uh, around the 26th. But conviction requires 60 votes, and that simply will not happen in the Senate. Mayorkas is the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in nearly 150 years. The Pentagon says Lloyd Austin has resumed his full duties as defense secretary. Austin was released from the hospital yesterday. Today marks six years since the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Seventeen people were killed. Danielle Gilbert survived the shooting. She says she feels many emotions connected to the building where it happened. It's slated to be torn down this summer. It also is a reminder of what I overcame, and it It's a reminder that I did survive and I did leave that building alive. The U.S. Senate unanimously passed a resolution yesterday honoring the victims. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston City Council today will consider whether to hold a hearing on the possibility of using congestion pricing. Such a measure could create a new fee for drivers in the city. Proponents say it could reduce traffic and raise money for public transit. A new bill to consider congestion pricing was also recently filed in the Massachusetts House and Senate. Immigrants contribute more than $100 billion annually to Greater Boston's economy. That's according to a new report out today from Boston Indicators. WBUR's Zinjor and Wameka reports. The report finds immigrants play an outsized role in the region's economy. They make up 21 percent of the population, but one quarter of the labor market and 28 percent of business owners. Luke Schuster is executive director of Boston Indicators. Especially for Main Street business owners, folks who start barbershops, convenience stores, gas stations, 40% are immigrants. So they're extremely entrepreneurial and they've been fueling the revitalization of many of our local downtowns across the region. Schuster says immigrants in greater Boston work across a range of sectors, including in low, middle and high wage jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. A majority of American Jews feel less secure in the country as compared to a year ago. That's according to a new report on anti-Semitism released by the American Jewish Committee. The organization's New England director tells the Boston Globe the findings mark a significant change. The report comes as the war between Israel and Hamas continues and amid reports of anti-Semitism at high-profile institutions like Harvard. It's 8.33. WVUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. program in business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info session on February 21st. The Celtics beat the Nets in Brooklyn last night by eight points. Final score was 118 to 110. The teams will face off again tonight at the Garden. That game gets underway at 7.30. The Bruins couldn't secure a win against the Tampa Bay Lightning last night. They lost in a shootout with a final score of 3 to 2.
Windy with highs in the low 30s today. Skies will be mostly overcast through about mid-morning. Then clouds gradually move out. Still windy and clear tonight in the low 20s. It'll gradually grow overcast throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from BritBox with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Democrats picked up a seat in the House of Representatives. Tom Swasey is the Democrat in question. He prevailed in New York's special election to replace Republican Congressman George Santos, who was indicted and expelled. Swasey spoke with supporters last night. It's time to move beyond the petty partisan bickering and the finger pointing. It's time to focus on how to solve the problems. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been covering this race, talking to voters in New York. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What did you hear from people as you moved around? I mean, border security was really the big issue that voters told me they were focused on. It's an issue Republicans thought could put Democrats in this race on defense. But Swazi really leaned into the issue. He talked about it a lot. A lot of his ads talked about the need to address the border crisis. This New York district uh, includes part of Queens, part of Nassau County areas uh, that are home to a lot of people who commute into downtown New York City. Yeah. Voters and Swazi talked about the impact that the migrant crisis, so many migrants have been bused from Texas to New York, has had on the local economy there. Swazi is a former House Democrat who served three terms. He used rhetoric that sounded pretty conservative for a Democratic candidate on immigration. He argued, he also argued the only way to fix any broken immigration system was to work across the aisle with Republicans. He hugged the Senate bipartisan border bill that Republicans derailed, and he really criticized his opponent, Mozzie Pillip, for opposing that bill. Okay, so Swazi wins. Let's talk about the effects first on the immediate situation in the House of Representatives. Right. Well, House Speaker Mike Johnson's razor-thin majority just got skinnier. He's down to just a two-vote majority if all members show up to vote. In terms of passing legislation, House Republicans' own agenda has just really been stalled because of divisions inside their own ranks. They've had to rely on Democrats to pass sort of basic things to govern, like avoiding a government shutdown. That's not going to change. Let's talk about the next larger effect. Of course, this is an early election in an election year where every House seat will eventually be up for election. Does this affect the way that Democrats and Republicans will approach other districts? It could. I mean, both parties spent a lot of money, more than $20 million combined, to try to use and test messages here to talk about their own narrative going into November. One thing the results showed is that a Democrat sort of taking on the border issue, an issue that's traditionally been strong for Republicans, can try to flip the script. We saw Swazi hammer Republicans for failing to act on the border and playing politics with the issue. Here's Swazi talking about that strategy last night. Are we going to keep on working until we hold politicians accountable when they just try to use issues for weaponization 
to try and destroy the other guys instead of actually solving the problems to make people's lives better. Okay, so that is going to raise one more question. Is this election some kind of predictor for what will happen in November? I mean, I think sometimes we overblow uh, the impact of special elections. Mm -hmm. Democrats are arguing it will. Republicans say this was a seat that Biden won in 2020. But, you know, this can give hints about voters, especially moderate suburban voters, are thinking about the big issues right now. There were some Democratic factors at this in this district in New York that make it different than other swing seats. There are a significant number of Asian American voters in this district, Jewish voters. It's also a district with one of the highest costs of living in the country. But because border security was such a big issue from both sides, I do think this race could really shape how candidates in both parties talk about the issue this fall. Deirdre, I'm glad you got out there and talked to the voters themselves. I appreciate your insights. Thanks, Steve. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Vice President Kamala Harris travels to Germany tonight for a series of high-stakes meetings with U.S. allies in coming days. The vice president is there to deliver a message that many people might have a hard time believing. She wants NATO allies and others to know that the United States is a reliable partner when it comes to conflicts like the one in Ukraine. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is going to be traveling with the vice president, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. So the vice president is going to Europe to this annual conference, the Munich Security Conference, right after former President Donald Trump raised fears about the long-term U.S. commitment to NATO. Is the reaction to what Trump said going to be a huge part of what she deals with on this trip? Mm -hmm. I mean, European allies are worried about the stability of that transatlantic alliance following comments by the former president, Donald Trump, who is also, of course, the Republican frontrunner in 2024. Trump said that Russia should, quote, do whatever the hell they want to countries who don't contribute enough money to NATO. It sounded like he was encouraging Russia to attack an ally. And yesterday we heard President Biden denounce the comments. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. And this, Layla, is the backdrop in which Harris is going to be going to Munich. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, people are going to be hanging on her words. I spoke to Wolfgang Ischinger about this. He's a retired German ambassador who for years led the Munich Security Conference. And he told me Europeans are watching the political situation in the U.S. very closely. Recent statements by candidate and former President Donald Trump about NATO and how he would deal with NATO allies has really been rattling us here on the European side. So how does the vice president reassure them? Well, you know, she can defend the administration's track record, but to step back, the White House is in a tough place right now. They want more aid money for Ukraine, but Republican leaders in the House are blocking that. And it is not clear when and even if Congress will agree to more funding. This White House promised that the Trump era was over, you know, that America was back. So I will say there is a lot at stake, both for the Biden administration's reputation and the United States' credibility as a world leader. Here's former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. The primary responsibility of the vice president is to make clear that despite these challenges, America's word is still strong and that it can be depended upon. 
But the reality is, it is going to be difficult for Harris to stand up and say, have faith in the U.S. when even a Democratic president we are seeing cannot guarantee additional mm. money for Ukraine because of partisan fights in Congress. The former German ambassador, Ischinger, flatly told me that Europeans are increasingly thinking about a plan B, how to defend themselves if there is indeed a future in which they cannot depend on the U.S. I mean, this is a tough job that, that Harris is going to have to carry out. Will she be able to reassure allies who are thinking about plan B? Well, this will be Harris's third time at this important meeting of world leaders in Munich. She's certainly traveled abroad on some major trips, but it's really fallen more on other members of Biden's inner circle, like Secretary of State Antony Blinken, to lead on diplomatic efforts. You know, that being said, Biden himself will not be in Munich, and so it does fall onto Harris to send the right message and the right tone to reassure allies at a critical time. And because of the politics at home, as we head into an election amidst growing questions about Biden, Biden's age. Harris really does have no room for error. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma. Always good to talk to you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report marks Valentine's Day with an update on the chocolate economy. Hershey warned last week it'll be cutting jobs as costs rise and consumers cut spending. Mostly cloudy skies gradually clear today. It'll be windy and in the low 30s. Tonight, clear skies and low 20s. Tomorrow, clouds move back in throughout the day, and it'll be in the upper 30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and Boston Ballet's Winter Experience. Celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Boston-based Liberty Mutual is laying off some of its Massachusetts employees. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it's part of a company-wide restructuring. Company officials say many of those affected will be offered other opportunities or severance. Needham-based TripAdvisor could soon be considering an acquisition offer. The company says it's forming a special committee to evaluate any buying proposals. TripAdvisor has not said if it's considering any specific deals. A longtime Somerville Italian restaurant plans to close. Out of the blue will close its doors after tonight's service. The owners tell MassLive they're planning to retire. It's 844. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate 
is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Humans aren't the only ones pairing up for Valentine's Day. It's breeding season for the African penguins at the New England Aquarium. The aquarium is one of about 50 facilities nationwide working to protect the species from extinction. WBOR's Barbara Moran takes us behind the scenes to see how penguins get it done. Getting animals to breed in a zoo or an aquarium can be tricky. And penguins like their surroundings just right. So as we enter this first room, this is where our nesting setup is. All right. Um, so we'll kind of go... Smells like uh, it's, fish. It certainly does. We Penguin trainer this, Nick Vitale uh, says the small cinder block room is set up to mimic breeding conditions in the wild. Sort of. There, African penguins burrow down into sand or guano to build nests. And here, upside-down plastic bins with openings in the side serve as penguin caves. One female steps out and glares at us, eyes narrowed. She's only two feet tall, but she looks ferocious. African penguins are a really territorial species, and as we get into the breeding season, their aggression levels and their territoriality is going to only increase. Vitaly offers her a treat, an eight-inch-long chunk of garden hose, which she accepts. The other penguins take notice. These are popular. They're all coming. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness, they're running. Wow, who knew? I guess you knew. <laughs> so African penguins really love to collect objects and bring them back to their nests. And our hope is that when we provide them all of these objects, that they get it in their head and get the gears turning that, oh, maybe it's time to go through that season. The aquarium tracks each penguin's pedigree and every year picks a few pairs for breeding. They look for couples that will make the best contribution to the species' genetic diversity. The aquarium and about 50 other institutions all share genetic data, and sometimes actual penguins, to ensure a healthy gene pool. Some of the African penguins here have stuck with one mate for their whole lives. Two of them are Durban and Harlequin. She's the one giving us the evil eye. So they have been together for over 24 years. Um, so their 25th anniversary is coming up soon, um, and they have just kind of been inseparable. Harlequin stopped eating a couple days ago, usually a sign that an egg is on the way. And sure enough, the trainers spy one in the nest, the first egg of the breeding season. All right, so Nick was able to retrieve the egg from under Durbin. Eric Fox, assistant curator of penguins, cradles it in the palm of his hand. It looks just like a jumbo chicken egg. It's nice and warm, which means the parents are sitting on it perfectly. That's exactly what we want to feel. We're all excited to know that uh, you know, 40 days from now, come early March, uh, we are going to hopefully see an egg emerge into a chick. Over the years, the staff has learned a lot about raising baby penguins. That comes in handy when they assist colleagues who work with orphaned or abandoned chicks in the field. And if this egg hatches, it'll be Durbin and Harlequin's ninth chick together. That seems worth celebrating. Maybe with romantic fish pie. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. You can see photos and video of the penguin lovebirds on our website, wbur.org.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about new research by scientists who spent hours filming great apes at zoos in San Diego and Germany. The researchers found that, like humans, apes also tease family and friends. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Caitlin Clark, the women's college basketball player, is on the verge of breaking the scoring record. The hype is palpable, and fans are putting their money down. We got them for off a student. They were $9 seats, and I think we paid $2.50 apiece. <laughs> we didn't care. We didn't care. We didn't care. More on the Caitlin Clark effect on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The CDC may be considering new COVID-19 guidelines that drop isolation periods for some cases. Wall Street is anticipating a rebound today after new inflation numbers sent markets falling this week. And a controversial military general is on track to become Indonesia's next president. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. Windy and low 30s today with skies that'll gradually clear throughout the day. Still windy tonight in the low 20s with clear skies. Upper 30s tomorrow, skies will grow increasingly overcast. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Inflation is not vanquished, what that means for the economy. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by Otter.ai. If someone's late to a meeting, Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant catches them up with a real-time meeting summary. More at Otter.ai. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. We got the latest inflation data yesterday, and as you may have heard, it was not as good as expected. The consumer price index was higher in January than it was in December. That is the wrong direction. Year-over-year inflation was up 3.1%. That, at least, was an improvement over December. But the fact is we are still above the Federal Reserve's ideal inflation rate of 2%. Markets were not pleased. The S&P 500 and the Dow both fell 1.4%. The Nasdaq fell 1.8%. For more, let's turn to Ben Kumar. He's head of equity strategy at Seven Investment Management. Good morning. Good morning. So can we take a moment just to walk everyone through the why behind why stock markets didn't really like the fact that fighting inflation appears to be taking longer than expected? Yeah. The, the the really simple way to think about it is that when inflation is high, the Federal Reserve will try and get inflation lower, usually by raising interest rates. What they're trying to do is suck a little bit of the excitement out of the economy. And we can all kind of see how that 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 works. You know, higher interest rates mean that borrowing is a bit more expensive. So we're a little bit less likely to go and borrow and spend money. 
And it also means that savings accounts are a little bit more attractive. We might want to put a little bit more money in the bank to earn a bit of interest. So it just slows the whole economy down. The problem is that markets, as you'd expect, equity markets in particular, don't like a slow economy. They need growth to keep investments flowing. Yeah, and markets had one view. Uh, they didn't like it. But I'm wondering what yours is. Are you as sort of pessimistic as, as traders yesterday appear to have been? Yeah, I think that traders in particular have been a little bit too optimistic about how quickly rates are going to come down across the world, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the, the European Central Bank, all of these institutions tend not to do things in a hurry. If we go back to, to thinking about when rates started to rise, most of the commentary at the time was that central banks had moved too slowly. I fully expect you'll see the same thing here. Inflation will come down and central banks will wait until they are 100% certain that inflation is around the 2% target. So when everyone got very excited at the end of last year that inflation was coming down quickly and rate cuts might happen in, in 2024, my response and the response of my firm was, Let, let's take it easy, guys. You know, the, the central banks are not known for their speed. Bluntly, if interest rates were at the same level at the end of the year as they are today, I wouldn't be too surprised. Ben Kumar is head of equity strategy at Seven Investment Management. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up eight tenths of a percent. Dow, S and P, and Nasdaq futures are down in the or are up in the three to six tenths percent range. With Dow futures up 113 points, the yield on the ten-year Treasury is 4.314 percent. There's word this morning that Walmart is in talks to buy Vizio, the bargain television brand, for around two billion dollars, according to the Wall Street Journal. And this raises a question: Why? Why does Walmart want to get into the TV-making business? Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here to explain. Vizio has something that Walmart's private label brand of televisions do not. Vizio has its own operating system, which means it can place digital ads, and that means a growing piece of the ad spending pie. This year, advertisers are forecast to spend nearly $30 billion in the U.S. for placements on smart televisions, which come with a trove of user data and potentially, with Walmart, information about how ad watching leads to product buying. In three years, eMarketer expects connected TV ad spending in the U.S. to top $40 billion. It's a rapidly growing business, and Walmart has previously indicated it wants to get in on the action, potentially making advertising more of a profit generator than what currently drives most of Walmart's earnings, the grocery business. Walmart is scheduled to report fourth quarter and full year financial results next week. That means we're likely to know within days whether this deal is happening and how Walmart expects it to impact its bottom line. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Walmart stock, by the way, is down half a percent in pre-market trading. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden password manager enables employees to securely access logins and sensitive information all in one place. Learn more at bitwarden.com. And by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com.
This Valentine's Day, the chocolate economy is not so sweet. Hershey warned last week it will be cutting jobs as part of an effort to trim costs by about $300 million. Consumers have pulled back on sweet stuff, with candy costing almost 5% more than it did a year ago, according to the latest inflation data. And costs are likely to keep climbing, as Marketplace's Megan McCarty Carino reports. Cocoa prices hit an all-time high last week, roughly doubling in a year, says economist John Bafez at the World Bank. So that has been a huge shock. And that, of course, comes at a time that we have huge demand. Most of the world's cocoa comes from just two countries, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, which were hit by extreme rains thanks to the El Nino climate pattern, says commodities analyst Judith Gaines. That caused a lot of the crop to basically fall to the ground. And with heavy rains, you also have disease. El Nino is also the culprit in spiking sugar prices. India and Thailand saw drier weather. Gaines says shortages could ease as Brazil ups exports of sugar, but cocoa prices could stay high. How many you know, cookie manufacturers are going to put fewer chocolate chips in their cookies? Or how many restaurateurs will put more you know, flans and cheesecakes on the menu. A bitter pill for chocolate lovers. I'm Megan McCarty Carino for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Low 30s and windy today with clearing skies. Temperatures fall to the low 20s tonight, upper 30s tomorrow, and increasingly cloudy. It's 29 degrees in Boston when the BBC News Hour is coming up next. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at VRTX.com. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuel for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.